Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SupChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success, and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important now than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're talking to Peter Korn, who leads international law firm Dorsey & Whitney's mainland China offices from his base in Shanghai. Peter has lived in China for over 25 years and has extensive experience in Chinese corporate and commercial law and is recognized as a leading practitioner in the field of mediation and arbitration. He's on many arbitration and mediation panels, including the Shanghai International Arbitration Commission, the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center, and the Shenzhen Court of International Arbitration. Peter was presiding arbiter over the first arbitration held within the Shanghai Free Trade Zone and has had a hand in the drafting and translation of the Shanghai International Arbitration Commission rules, the most forward-looking arbitration rules in China's history. In addition to being the managing partner of Dorsey Shanghai office, Peter is also co-head of the firm's U.S.-China practice group and the firm's clean tech practice group as well. Peter, welcome to China Corner Office. Thanks very much, Chris. Great to be here. So let's dive in uh, with a relatively general question. Can you just describe the work of Dorsey and Whitney in China, in particular, some of the common legal issues or problems that foreign firms face? Okay, well, they're two quite different questions. Um, like many other foreign law firms, the practice has evolved very much over the past 10 years. Um, over the first couple of decades of uh, Dorsey's activities in China, we were mainly representing foreign clients in market entry type projects, uh, as well as IP. Um, the IP has remained very much the same, uh, but in terms of market entry, um, I guess you could say everything is now turned on its head. 
uh, whereas predominantly before we were helping foreign clients with their corporate work in China and M&A, uh, most of that work has now gone to the domestic Chinese law firms. Um, foreign law firms have provided a really big service to the Chinese legal community, and they've sort of acted like incubators of Chinese talent, which subsequently moved on and became uh, partners at the most prestigious Chinese firms. And as foreign clients have localized in China, um, they've developed their own in-house legal teams and uh, the budgets have moved locally. Uh, so they've um, needed the services of local law firms which, have, um, which aren't limited in the way foreign law firms are because the, um, the environment here hasn't yet reached a point where foreign law firms can do what domestic law firms can do. Um, so uh, we've now evolved so that uh, I would say 60 to 70 percent or even more of our work is representing Chinese clients in their activities overseas. Um, and uh, that's in a great variety of areas. It's uh, corporate work, M&A work, compliance work, a lot of disputes type work. Um, our IP work has remained robust, that's both ways, uh, but the corporate work uh, has very much changed. Uh, and disputes work has increased. Oh, that's very interesting. And I think actually, I mean, a lot of businesses and sectors have experienced the same as Chinese talent uh, has developed over the past you know, decade or two. You know, things are much more uh, localized. Uh, it's interesting, though, that the, you said that the corporate work has shifted more to domestic firms, but the IP, it seems, is not as much. Why do you think that is? IP is by nature quite a specialized area, and it's a... IP law is really a very international type of law. You know, naturally have domestic IP legislation, but it's based on international agreements. There's a lot of consistency across the board. And uh, there's a lot of um, transnational and strategic advice involved in every single project. So to the extent that every IP project involves multiple jurisdictions normally, it normally lends itself to an international practice. So I think that's why IP is tended to hold up in a way that um, uni-jurisdictional corporate work and corporate transactions has changed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Within particularly IP, but also, I mean, some of the previous work you've done on the corporate side, you know, what are some of the, I guess, key issues that firms are dealing with as they try to enter China? Well, we don't see many law firms try to enter China anymore. Um, it's, <laughs> I think there's, effort, <laughs> I think there's, uh, you mean uh, corporates or law firms? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, you're, you're corporates. Exactly. Uh, so, I see. Yeah. For, firms that you're advising, uh, both on the IP side and then just general entry side, if you, uh, you're still doing some of that work. Okay. Well, um, those issues have changed as well. In the past, uh, a lot of the issues revolved around transparency and actually trying to um, get some clarity about the environment in which they're going to operate. So um, over the last few, few years, the Chinese system has evolved. Um, I wouldn't say it's like the American system, 
But uh, for those in the know, um, there has been more clarity possible than in the past. And uh, the way legislation is interpreted has become more consistent, more predictable. The exercise of discretion, while it's still not governed by the same rules as in the United States, which is probably a step too far, um, there are ways to reason with those doing the interpretations so that uh, you know they don't fall outside the ambit of the legislation. So there has been a lot of improvements. Um, I think the main concerns for foreign firms, these for foreign companies entering, entering the market these days is how to get familiar enough, how to get good enough staff and how to minimize costs to the extent that they're really operating on a level playing field with Chinese companies. It's, it's because uh, the local Chinese companies, they're not just competitive now because they are you know, their costs are lower, but also because uh, they have better talent and they have much better resources. So to actually break into the market now is probably more difficult than it was before. Yeah. What's your sense about the recent trade? Um, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to use the word war, but sort of tensions and conflict. Is it, are, are firms entering less? I mean, some reports actually that I've read suggest that Actually, the Chinese are trying to attract even more uh, international and U.S. firms, even admit in the midst of this uh, tension between the U.S. and China. Yeah, we've seen the opposite trend to what the macro environment would suggest. Um, Chinese authorities have actually doubled down on liberalization and in some areas on deregulation, uh, uh, while this um, trade... Um, war has been continuing. Uh, so you've had new laws rushed through which regulate, uh, for example, the regulatory environment over the setup and the operation of companies. The foreign investment law was rushed through probably um, too quickly. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that's meant that the form of entities uh, that foreigners create when they enter into China are the same and governed by the same laws as domestic entities. On the other hand, um, incentives and um, the other things that uh, different localities throughout China tend to rely on to attract foreign investment, they've doubled down on them as well because um, they want to make... Um, well, there's different levels of this on a national level. Um, they don't want to seem as though they're discriminating against foreign companies. Um, they don't want to play into the hands of political forces which would like to suggest that China is favoring Chinese companies. That's on the macro level. So they're really being very careful about that. Um, and on the micro level, there's still a lot of competition between different localities throughout China to attract foreign investment. And they all still have their targets uh, that they like to hit, you know, their goals each year about how much foreign investment that they're pulling in. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Very interesting. You also mentioned that, that the interpretations of laws have gotten sort of clearer and perhaps even more transparent over time. Can you talk a little bit about that process? So is, is it courts that are doing this? Is it 
regulators within agencies. Uh, how does that interpretation process of the laws work? Well, I would say that the general standards of um, people in you know relevant positions is higher than it has before. And that's a natural process as um, more and more better educated people enter the system. And, um, you know, for example, I guess up to a decade ago, um, you had a lot of retired army officials who are judges still in the court system. You know, naturally, they're not as well educated as uh, the new generation of judges, which is coming through. Um, I think in association with that, the prestige of the profession in general has increased and you've got a lot more legally trained people inside the government as well. So um, if we start with the court system, there's been um, aggressive reform in the court system in an attempt to improve its general level, you know, going on for the best part of 15 or 20 years. It's really impressive the way that it's come along, not just physically, but um, you know, the level of specialization of different judges and the different courts, you know, the IP court, the environmental court, the commercial court. Um, and uh, in addition to all that, um, the level of experience and expertise that's demanded of judges, the expectations is, are much higher. The flip side of that is that China has become a much more litigious society, so the pressures on judges are much higher too. And that's what's led to the growth in mediation, which we can talk about later. Uh, you know, the Chinese system, it's a unitary system. It's not that like the US system. Um, judges um, in the Supreme Court in particular, they can make judgments which are turned into types of precedents, but uh, it's not a precedent system like a common law system. You know, they're for reference precedents that are published and distributed within the court system. But generally, when we talk about interpretations, it's interpretations made by the bodies which actually, actually enact laws and regulations and rules. So in that sense, um, you know, the courts have a limited right of review over those sorts of interpretations. So we're very much reliant on the quality of the interpretations themselves uh, issued by those government departments. You know, it's still got a long way to go, but there has been a general increase in quality uh, particularly as there's been more and more procedure about the method by which these interpretations and uh, implementing legislations are issued. So it's a work in progress, but we've seen a general trend uh, towards a better system. Yeah, I know when I've been in China, I mean, it, and I, you know, have taught at a variety of Chinese universities and the, the legal field I know is growing tremendously as far as the education infrastructure. And as you mentioned, it's become a much more prestigious uh, position for people to have. So that's, that's very interesting to hear how that's influencing the courts. Uh, you mentioned that China is becoming more litigious, and this is increased uh, mediation. Can you say a little bit about like what types of, of cases are being brought? Are they commercial cases, individual cases? Uh, sort of how, how is this you know, sort of played out over the past number of years? And then would love to transition also into your work in mediation. Yeah, um, I think uh, in the main, um, 
it's civil cases and commercial cases that have a huge increase. Uh, we've also seen a big increase in administrative cases as well. Believe it or not, there's a lot more um, people and companies suing the government. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there are laws that have been in place for quite some yeah. years and they've been more and more utilized. There are, is a limit, limited ambit to um, standing for um, bringing lawsuits, but they're being fully utilized. And uh, in fact, the government has become very sensitive towards the risk of being sued. Um, this would be like local governments, uh, city governments, village governments. Uh, yeah, all levels. Mainly all, the targets? All levels, huh? All levels, yeah, absolutely. And officials are accountable if, it's, if they've made a mistake and they're being sued. You know, it it does draw attention. So, um, uh, and, and later on, we can also talk about the level of accountability that's imposed on officials in the environmental arena as well, which has also um, had a big part in changing the landscape here too. Um, yeah, um, so, you know, when we're talking about the most common forms of lawsuit, which are in the area of civil and commercial lawsuit, um, you've had basically an explosion over the years yeah. to the extent that, um, you know, judges, individual judges are having to handle hundreds of cases at the same time. It's just become completely unmanageable. Um, to the extent that uh, practitioners are beginning to really feel sorry for them. And, uh, you know, some judges just can't really take it anymore. So they decide not to be judges. And quite a few of them are actually moving to the profession in preference to being judges. So it's a problem. Uh, so the Supreme Court, in response to this obvious trend, started to uh, encourage uh, 10 years ago the incorporation of mediation into the system and we've seen a process of professionalization of mediation and an uptick in the rate of use of mediation as a result uh, to the extent that now uh, it really is in the court environment quite sophisticated um, you, it's particularly in the big commercial centers um, judges unlike before don't tend to mediate their own cases. Um, organizations such as the one I'm associated with, the Shanghai Commercial Mediation Center, have contractual arrangements with quite a number of courts, and they refer cases out to specialized mediation centers uh, for mediation. Oh, so that's very interesting. So, so a lot of the work actually comes directly from the court. So it's not these, you know, the two counterparties that say, okay, let's actually, you know, work this out ourselves. But actually, the court, because of its overflow of cases, is is referring these to the centers. That's correct. Um, we're still not at the stage of mediation in the U.S. where there's a real common understanding. Uh, in the population about what mediation actually is. Um, this is often done at the instigation of judges that basically tell the parties, I think you really should try to mediate this. <laughs> and uh, you don't have, I mean, we'd love there to be more private mediation outside of the court system. We're working on it, uh, but that is still a work of progress as well. Um, most of the mediations 
actually come through the court system. Interesting. Can you just, I mean, describe in general sort of the process? So, you know, the judge refers the case over to you. Obviously, you're, you're meeting with and reviewing documents from the, the two different parties. Um, yeah, it'd be great if you could just describe a process uh, of how it goes. You know, the lawsuit is brought, you know, with the normal sort of documents, uh, with the, uh, the pleading and the defense. Then there's normally initial hearing with the judge um, who's had a chance to review the case. And it's at that point that the judge would say, well, um, I'd like you to try to mediate this first. Uh, I would expect you to mediate this first. So in a sense, although um, mediation is voluntary, you know, normally part, you don't get one party saying, oh, we don't want to try. <laughs> so they would definitely, uh, yeah, then it's referred out to the mediation center. In our case, it's called the Shanghai Commercial Mediation Center, which has a team of professional staff, which liaise with the judge and his staff. And they take over the process of contacting the parties and their counsel and uh, arranging for the information, the basic information to be given to the mediator. Mediations are confidential, so nothing that's you know, presented in the mediation does go to the general court hearing if the mediation is a failure. So that that helps to get a resolution. So there tends to be a rate of about 60% success in the media. So it's pretty high. And um, uh, then um, the advantage of all that is that the mediation agreement has the status of the court judgment, which means that if one or other party doesn't abide by its obligations in the agreement, then you can go straight to the enforcement division in the court and enforce. So the agreement has some teeth. Yeah, you can see a report very interesting uh, about a mediation I recently concluded um, in the Shanghai Maritime Court. You'll be able to Google it. It's about a um, case that involves frozen red wine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I will definitely take a look a look at that. So, okay. can you provide any details um, while we're on the on the line here? Obliged to keep confidentiality. I can tell you what was in the newspaper article. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was an international case. That's where I'm normally brought in. Um, uh, it was there was initial case between a shipper in the states and uh, the customer in Japan. The wine was shipped. And um, it was shipped under the wrong conditions. It was frozen. I mean, don't ask me how that happened. It's <laughs> it sounds absurd, but the Japanese opened the uh, yeah. opened the uh, the containers. And they found a lot of wine ice cream, basically. <laughs> so uh, so um, they brought a suit in the states. They won. There was compensation paid. Um, but then, of course, there's an insurer involved. The the party that was responsible for supplying the wine sued the shipper which was Chinese and so that's why the case came to our court because they brought a suit against the shipper in the Shanghai Maritime Court uh -huh. and that's how it came to me. Yeah interesting yeah, yeah you sort of wonder how that actually happened where the wine ends up getting getting frozen in route. <laughs> um, yeah well uh, a lot of work went into that and I can't disclose anything but you know, you can tell there's a lot of miscommunication. 
misunderstand yeah. it. Yeah. Um, well, one of the areas, shifting gears a little bit, that I definitely want to talk about is your work in environmental law. I know that's a real passion of yours and a real f- a focus of your practice. And it's and it's an area where there's been a tremendous amount of change over the past uh, decade or two, I know. I was wondering, you know, maybe if you could just start with talking a little bit about your background in that, why you're attracted to that, and how things in China have changed uh, in the recent past. Thanks. Um, I think, um, you know, where I was brought up, um, it was during that period, you know, where the book Silent Spring by Susan George and DDT and all of that stuff, it really made its way into education in the schools. So I went through that generation. So I think we're quite an ideological generation coming through. Uh, I was brought up in Australia. So um, I was always quite passionate about this area. And obviously, when I arrived in China in the 90s to work, it was during that period of extreme and rapid environmental degradation. So it was just all around me. So of course, if one's surrounded by it, one really wants to do something about it. What can you do? You know, at that point, it did look a bit desperate because, you know, you're talking about law and, you know, interpretation of law. Well, the one area of law that I guess was characteristic of all the problems in the legal system here was environmental law because you had the huge gap between law and reality, you know. And the then regulator didn't really have much power and there was a huge dislocation between the interests of local authorities and what the law said. Um, but I still got into it um, because there's still a need for environmental technology and an interest in it. So uh, I tended to start acting for um, companies that were bringing environmental solutions in the form of technology to China. But that um, there was a huge uplift with the Kyoto Protocol, you know, uh, you know the CDM system where. Um, China joined as a a Nexia company, the U.S. pulled out, unfortunately, but there was a carbon market formed in the U.S., so a lot of companies could make a lot of money by reducing emissions into the atmosphere and in return getting carbon credits, which they could sell on the European carbon market. So that was a huge um, encouragement to um, companies bringing these sorts of technologies to China. So I remember in one deal... um, huge steelmaker in North China. We helped them reduce their carbon emissions by capturing heat um, and reducing their energy um, consumption. They generated about 100 million euro worth of carbon credits out of that deal. Yeah. Um, You know, it's, you know, it wasn't just wind farms and solar farms. There was a lot of energy efficiency type projects Mm -hmm. that reduced emissions. Um, of course, the Kyoto Protocol uh, and the EU carbon market, um, they, uh, they had their day. Um, hopefully, they'll come back. But, uh, <laughs> but then um, I think the situation was still getting very much worse in China to the extent that we had some really, really bad Uh, periods in about 2012 and the awareness was increasing Mm -hmm. around the country 
Uh, and I remember even in Shanghai, it was just shocking. We had one day, I took pictures where we had a, you know, um, AQI of 600, you know, and I think in other parts of the country it could have hit wow. 800, 1,000. The PM 2.5 was just terrible. So right. a lot of foreigners were leaving. They just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, they were scared for their kids. Yeah, particularly. Yeah, yeah particularly yeah. those in North China. You know, I was thinking, you know, what am I doing? I mean, I'm supposed to be doing work that increases the uptake of technology to solve this problem. Doesn't look like I'm doing anything. You know, it's just getting worse and worse. <laughs> and then uh, Li Keqiang, um, he uh, declared a war on pollution. Uh, President Xi took power. Um, he developed the concept of uh, ecological civilization, which is based on a lot of Taoist and Confucian principles. It's basically the UN SDGs expressed differently, right? Um, so that um, was a very core tenet of the new regime together with the war on corruption. So those two things, I think, have characterized um, the changes in the law. So you had the environmental law changed in about 2015. A lot of very key features were introduced that made a big difference, such as uh, the responsibility of officials and how their career prospects would be drastically affected if they didn't take care of environment. Mm -hmm. um, I think that more than anything has had an impact. You've also got a very interesting aspect, two strikes that you add your out type system whereby CEOs are basically incarcerated if they don't, uh, if they're caught twice for actually um, having uh you know, uh, severe non-compliance of environmental law. You can imagine you're sent into jail for 10 days right. yeah, and you're a CEO. That's not nice. So, <laughs> so you know, <laughs> um, so there's, um, um, and, and then you've got the environmental tax system as well, which has come, come into operation. Then you've got this extremely good online monitoring system that anybody can access which can tell you exactly what's going on with the emissions from uh, every company you know in China which all has to report through the system so you've had um, real-time monitoring and uh, campaign after campaign after campaign which has gradually become entrenched uh, I think the National authorities don't have to conduct them anymore. Now the local authorities have become um, trained up so that they can continue their effort on an ongoing basis. So um, whereas Chinese enforcement style in the old days was very much characterized by now and then campaign type um, efforts, you know, and once one campaign was gone, all the you know, when the cats were away, the mice would play type thing. Now it's just wave after wave after wave, and um, it's a consistent enforcement. Uh, hopefully this will be a, a template for the future for other areas of law as well, but definitely environmental law is ahead. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I mean, many of the examples I was not um, aware of, I mean, particularly this 
online monitoring system, uh, you know, it really makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you, you know, with transparency comes, you know, the general public, the media can actually, you know, see what companies are doing in addition to the government, and then they can sort of pressure the government or the or the companies. So it provides a little bit more of a, you know, sort of way to way to monitor the firms. But I know in the past, uh, you know, maybe before the 2015 legal changes, you know, the government was not as in favor of um, transparency. I'm thinking about, you know, when the different U.S. embassies and consulates were putting, you know, air quality monitors on their roofs. uh, And there was a lot of, you know, sort of pushback uh, against that. Do you see a lot of this sort of transparent information sharing? You know, does the general public engage with this and the media uh, to help to help pressure companies? Yeah, where it's in line with government policy, uh, there's a lot of reporting on it, a lot of monitoring. Uh, Naturally, there's been a big growth in the number of NGOs that are involved in this area as well. Um, So um, different parts of society have become more active in this area because it, it is in line with government policy. Uh, and that's the key characteristic. Um, you see a lot of... Um, naturally, in China, there are certain lines that you don't want to cross in certain areas. And, uh, you know, if you know the system, you know where those lines exist. But to the extent that what you do is in line with government policy, you're actually helping the government achieve its own objectives in improving certain aspects of the environment here. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, political science, there's this sort of theory of responsive authoritarianism where, you know, authoritarian governments, they give limited or sort of selective various sort of freedoms and transparencies so that so that actually the general public can be involved in, you know, monitoring different actors. So that's um, that's really interesting how in the environment realm, it makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, I'm curious, you, you also mentioned uh, the the officials and how their in some ways I don't know KPIs or objectives have changed and I know you know that's been something you know how officials are I guess incentivized in their career promotion has been a huge engine of growth in many ways you know when it was focused on you know foreign direct investment and GDP growth you know that led to huge increases in that and then the environment indicators come in as well. Can you say a little bit about how that may uh, work and and the effect that that has had? Yeah, it's a type of tension. It always has been. um, But obviously, before the um, incentive to reach all of these uh, foreign investment targets, economic growth targets, uh, you know, the economic related targets was much greater than the incentive to ensure that there were uh, effective environmental compliance mechanisms. That's what changed. Now there's very much um, countervailing pressures, a balance. You really have to take care of everything. You can't ignore one over the other. It definitely has big consequences. So um, <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to be an official that's... Um, got brilliant economic growth stats and terrible environmental um, figures because he's not going to, he or she is not going to get anywhere, you know, there. Right. Yeah. So um, they have to take care of all of these aspects in order to get ahead. Pretty challenging, uh, pretty challenging jobs, I think. Uh, 
uh, sort of looking forward a little bit, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, you know, you mentioned Kyoto, um, sort of 20 years later was, uh, you know, a Paris agreement where there's an effort around by 2050 to, to basically be carbon, you know, e- equalized. Yeah. Uh, President Xi recently committed to t- 2060, you know, f- a new five-year plan that's focused on the environment um, issues. Can, can you say a little bit about what your, I don't know, prediction might not be the right way to think about it, but like your assessment of these actions and what you see in the coming years as China moves to being carbon neutral? Well, uh, we in the environmental community, we were pretty surprised by President Xi's commitment. I mean, this is a big, big step up from the whole carbon intensity commitment that arose out of Paris. This is completely another level. So um, it's going to have a huge knock-on effect over time and just in the pace at which environmental solutions are taken up in order to help China achieve these very ambitious targets. And um, so um, I think we can see um, a big acceleration on what would have been the case without that commitment. So uh, we're all very cautiously excited about the implications you know, starting with the five-year plan, which itself is very significant. You know, um, nobody wants to miss targets in a five-year plan. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, I think the challenge will be more expertise. You know, how do you build in enough expertise into the system in order to adequately assess technologies to have this wide-scale implementation of technologies in a very professional way that requires a lot of training up you know maybe china will um, encourage more of its foreign talent to come back to china and help them you know in this very ambitious endeavor Um, but um, it will also have a knock-on effect for other countries i mean if china's making commitments and it's the manufacturing engine of the world (laughs) everybody else should be able to make them as well you know of the different you know i mean you've been seeing this i think this is now sort of the third five-year plan at least that has had pretty significant focus on environment issues be it sort of new strategic industries uh you know clean tech focus you know what's your sense of you know looking back um and looking forward a little bit you know where some of the key innovations have been that have really helped um advance environmental uh, work in China? Um, Well, a lot of these innovations are still in train, um, but uh, the innovations that have probably made a big difference are, um, you know, the the solar industry reducing costs to a level where it was uh, basically profitable and and, uh, can compete adequately with fossil fuels. I think solar is one. Uh, wind, of course, is another. Um, you know, although it's a dirty word, China has developed its own nuclear technology solutions. I mean, whatever happens, that will be, that will be part of it, you know, because it needs to draw upon every different solution that it's got at its disposal. Right. Um, you've had a lot of, um, you know, German-style 
industrial 4.0 type internet connectivity for energy management, which um, is greatly increasing efficiency across the board in the manufacturing sector. Um, so, you know, the Internet of Things is helping uh, and that's going to be an ongoing process. Um, there's still an awful lot to do, but you can see that there's an uh, enormous amount of effort being made in the industrial uh, arena, you know, um, uh, you know, CAS and different uh, uh, different research institutes like SARI, um, with the support of um, chemical and petrochemical companies, you know, energy companies, you know, they're all desperate to find ways to survive in this very pressured environment of reducing emissions. They're developing a lot of new solutions applicable to history, uh, to, to industry um, that rely, for example, on hydrogen and uh, other alternative energy sources. Um, so while these things haven't matured to the extent that they've been able to be deployed uh, in a huge way yet, um, that's the objective and that's what we'd expect to see over the next 10 years, uh, solutions applicable to industry that make a very big difference, which will mean that China will be able to achieve peak, peak coal a lot earlier and then reduce its reliance on coal rapidly after that. Uh, so there was one thing I want, forgot to mention, and that was um, in the built-up environment, you've had this whole initiative around uh, eco-cities, you know. Uh, e you know, energy efficiency in cities is normally achieved where you have a certain level of density. And of course, China is very dense. So um, you've um, had a lot of initiatives around trying to perfect technologies around um, efficient management of resources in cities so expect that to go a long way too very rapidly uh you know and obviously you know an urban environment is much more you know sort of ecological potentially ecologically responsible as opposed to having people dispersed and uh you know you can be much more efficient when you're in uh sort of large high rises you, you mentioned peak coal do, do you happen to know the general date about when they're projecting uh, off the top of my head i think it's 2030, I think. Wow. As I've been following the environment um, in China over the past, you know, now I guess about 10 years, you know, the, the, the increase in, in solar and wind has been tremendous. I think that, you know, now over 10, you know, 10, 15% comes from each of those so that, you know, the, I think coal is down in the 50%, whereas, you know, just not that long ago, it was in the 70s. So, so it has been tremendous uh, progress. Um, last, last question I have uh, is actually just your general sort of advice for for international firms or foreigner individuals sort of entering China in this you know unique time. What what, what do you have to recommend to people? I well, going back to the beginning of the conversation, um, please don't think you're not welcome in China. <laughs> um, China, the doors are very much open, even more so than before. Um, it's bending over backwards to show that, you know, despite what's happening in the political arena, 
you know, businesses are very welcome and uh, it's doubled down on liberalization. So please be attentive. Things may have opened up in your industry so things can change very quickly. So do check that. Um, to give an example, um, you know, you you would normally expect um, in areas of high technology for China to be insisting on some sort of joint venture, particularly in sensitive areas. But um, as you know, I'm involved in the European China Chamber of Commerce, the head of the Environmental Working Group and the head of the European Chamber um, is the representative of BASF in China. And he likes to talk about how BASF was, um, you know, in most of its um, sectors forced to joint venture 50-50. But um, its biggest ever project and indeed the biggest investment ever in China's history, I think in South China, petrochemical related, you know, on the basis that BASF will bring its best stuff to China, it's wholly foreign owned. Wow, that's that's a great point to, to end on, and that's it's really was the inspiration for me starting this podcast. Is that you know there's so much, in some ways, negative news or so much focus on the tensions and how difficult things are in the U.S. media, and to you know hear these sort of stories and examples about how there still is really a lot of potential and there's still a lot of areas to uh, cooperate. You know, really, I think will will mean a lot to the listeners. So, thank you so much, Peter, for joining us on China Corner Office. It's been wonderful talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon. See you soon.